Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, will Ontario's budget cuts pull millions of dollars from Hamilton's public health and children's programs? Joe Biden's thrown his hat into the presidential ring. Also, a new study of public opinion suggests that Albertans want Jason Kenney to be aggressive with the federal government and other provinces as quickly as possible. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. I'm going to start off today talking about something that I know a lot of people get upset about, but it's an evil word. It's called downloading, and it looks like it's starting to happen all over again. Uh, the Ontario budget cuts, of course, that uh, the Ford government has announced over the last little while are now starting to trickle down to municipalities. And uh, it could put millions of dollars out of the Hamilton Public Health and Child Care programs. And uh, that puts an awful lot of pressure on City Council to try to find either more money or to raise taxes. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty ugly situation. Chad Collins is the Council for Ward 5. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Morning, Chad. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Bill. Yourself? Good. You've uh, seen this movie before, haven't you? Yeah, it's deja vu, really. Um, and you and I both had to deal with this in the late 90s, and it seems to be a uh, a political trademark for the Ontario Conservatives as it relates to trying to deal with their own fiscal issues at the provincial level. Well, and, and listen, we understand the rhetoric that goes on, and we understand, obviously, that there was a great deal of concern what the previous mm-hmm. government was doing and their spending problems. Yep. Uh, but then you get a government, in this case it's the Doug Ford government, who simply says, look, we're going to rein in spending. We're going to save that $6 billion that he kept talking about. Yeah. But... <laughs> But the reality here is that he's just pouring all these services back down onto the local tax base. Yeah, it's a very lazy way and very uncreative way in terms of dealing with the fiscal issues that um, that they're facing. And, and to be clear, all levels of government have to deal with fiscal challenges in terms of rising costs and in some cases lower revenues in certain areas. So I certainly understand the complexities and, and the challenges that they face. It's, it's not um, foreign for municipalities to have to deal with the same. Uh, but... Um, they are one. Uh, sorry, Ontario has become one of the only provinces that um, consistently have downloaded services or costs to municipalities. And to to take us back, Bill, to the 1990s, as you just alluded to, um, you know, when when Mike Harris was our premier, uh, we witnessed downloading for social housing, and so the uh, housing stock that the province was responsible for. Uh, they essentially gave the keys to municipalities across the province and said, here are some 40- and 50-year-old uh, housing units. Um, here's the keys. You, you manage them and you maintain them uh, on a go-forward basis from a capital perspective. And that costs municipalities tens, if not hundreds of million dollars, if you start to include communities like Toronto and others. Um, Ontario Works was a, was a classic example. Those costs were downloaded to um, uh, uh, municipalities. Ontario Works and, and, and welfare services, if some people call them, across the country and across even parts of the U.S. are all managed either by the provincial or state level. And, and Ontario was the only one to force those costs down on the municipalities. And, of course, Bill, we dealt with ambulance services, yep. to conservation authorities, as you recall. I mean, I even recall losing an air monitoring station in the East End, which was fairly controversial at the time in light of our industrial operations here. And so it really t- touched almost all parts of the municipal um, budget. It, it touched almost all services related to municipalities where there was a connection to the province. And we're starting to see that now in dribs and drabs, slowly coming out of the first provincial budget here with cuts, as you've just mentioned at the top of the show, uh, public health and child care services, of which we'll probably see just over $2 million this year. And, uh, and of course, you've previously commented on uh, the small cuts to library services. Conservation authorities already have taken a small hit. And um, and of course, uh, you know, I, it doesn't even include or start to to uh, address 
the issues that school boards and other uh, entities are facing as well. So these downloaded costs force municipalities to make decisions. Either there's two things we can do, and that is one, make up for those uh, the shortfall in revenues by passing those costs on through our tax bill to our ratepayers, or two, live with the service cuts. And so it means just making difficult decisions. If we don't have the revenue to deliver those services, um, in what areas then will we reduce service in order to to uh, level the budget? We need to be clear about something here, too, that I, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about this this whole process. Mm-hmm. Uh, and these are programs that the province was sharing, in, and, and the city's already putting in your, your, your fair share of this. I mean, you know, right. it's not as if they're simply saying, okay, here's all the bill for public health, the province pay this for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you guys put over $12 million annually into this thing. Uh, it's them basically backing out and saying, we're not partnering anymore. We, you're not getting any money for us, and you guys have to do it yourself. Right, so they're reducing the percentages, and so in some cases the funding is 70-30, in other cases it's 80-20, and they're starting now to to bump those percentages up in terms of the municipal responsibility. And it's odd in terms of, I, you know, I read the AMO document that was distributed yesterday to uh, all member municipalities, and Toronto's percentages, uh, you know, thankfully we're not in Toronto, Toronto's percentages are a lot different than the rest of the province, and so he really seems to have a personal vendetta and a grudge against Toronto and all the things that happened to him and his brother prior uh, to his being elected as the premier, their percentages are a lot different than every other municipality in, in the province and a lot worse. And so I, you know, I, as I've read and listened to the news as it relates to Mayor Tory and, and their budget challenges with the, I think they've announced a billion over 10 years. Um, you know, I, I look at that and say, geez, things could be a lot worse here in Hamilton. But I, I have a strong suspicion, Bill, that this is the first of four years. And so Samantha Craig's just before the day before the budget was announced for the province interviewed me and said, you know, what kind of funding or investments are you expecting? I said, you know, Sam, I'm, I'm really expecting the first of, of four or five years of the, and the, the start of downloading. I really think that they're going to go back to the game plan that they had in the late 90s. And, um, and so far, that's, um, you know, I, it, it, that's, uh, I think, an accurate statement. Uh, we're starting to see that. And, I, you know, my fear is that they start to get back into Ontario Works for as much as I disagreed with many of the things that the last government did, um, Kathleen Wynne lived up to their commitment. Their government promised that they would undo the downloading related to Ontario Works that was implemented during the Harris years. They phased that out over a number of years. And I think in 2016, if memory serves me right, that might have been the last year where they uploaded, actually uploaded uh, costs to the province uh, to take and and to take those costs on, and that provided uh, financial relief to cities. And so it was a tremendous assistance to us during our budget process. So I I think we're going to start to see the reverse now. I think they're going to go back to those services. They've already announced changes to ambulatory services. Um, I I anticipate additional costs there. I think more is coming for conservation authorities, unfortunately, and I am a board member with the conservation authority. And, of course, um, you know, transportation and other areas. There are so many services where we're interconnected with the province. It's anyone's guess. Uh, in terms of where it's going to happen, but I, I think it's inevitable that it will happen. And, and, and let's be clear about this. I mean, because I, I hear every time we have one of these discussions, I hear back from people that say, well, that guy's just trying to get his job. To, he's, you know, he's trying to put the province's books back in order. I get mm-hmm. that. All right. Mm-hmm. And that's a laudable goal. But mm-hmm. the fact of the matter is, is I, I, I would question anybody that says that. How much you pay in, in provincial tax? It's right off the top of it. I guarantee that nine times out of 10 people have no idea, but they know yeah. what they pay in property taxes. 
They and they're always upset, and the, you're the guy that has to answer those phone calls, Chad, you and your yeah. council colleagues. This, this, this word out of Queens Park today essentially means people's property taxes are going to increase. If you're a small business owner, your business taxes are going up. Your residential taxes are going to go up now mm-hmm. because somebody has to cover these costs. Um, here's the other element to this, too. I want to talk about timing, Chad. Mm-hmm. You guys have already put the budget to bed. Where are you going to find the money for this if, if, in fact, you decide that you're going to have to maintain these programs? Yeah, that's a great point, Bill. Whenever there are in-year budget changes, especially if they come after the budget's been established, you're, you can't obviously incorporate it into the tax bill because the, the rate's been set and those bills will go out slowly over the over the course of the year. And so you're forced to either take it out of reserves or, as I mentioned, you, you start to implement those service reductions immediately. And, and that as well, you know, to try to make sense of some of these cuts and implement those service changes in short order is very difficult to do. So you're you're, you're you're almost by default forced to take on those costs, and um, and then you're you're dealing with them at year end. And so we we've been very fortunate. We just had our year end um, update from last year, and our staff did a good job. We were I think with four or five million dollars in terms of rate budget and our, our tax bill uh, under, and um, and we've had a couple of consecutive years now where we've managed our books very well. Those year end surpluses go into reserves that help us. Um, you know, on a rainy day when we start to see some of these unanticipated costs locally. You and I have talked about weather events and things like that. And so these um, these provincial costs, when they're flowed through to us after our budget's been established, we start to eat into those reserves then. And and, um, and certainly from a fiscal perspective, uh, it, it it's not the, the right way to do business, to be sure. By the way, we, we don't even have a clear picture on what's going on. I mean, you know, here we are talking about you as the Board of Health, City Council mm-hmm. as the Board of Health. You're not even sure if they're going to be a Board of Health in Hamilton because they've, they've already said that there could be some, some rejigging or amalgamation or we're not even quite sure what the process is going to be. Yeah, and I, you know, I think, again, in, it's your early days of this government still. Um, in terms of their communication to not just municipalities, but I think to Ontarians in general and, and you know, even how these things traditionally are released to the media, uh, people have really had to dig to find um, either the cuts and or the policy changes that are that are coming out. And um, instead of having an announcement with stakeholders, they've essentially put these things on their website or they they send out a circular on a Friday afternoon at five o'clock. And um, and so it's it's been challenging in terms of trying to understand um, exactly what some of this legislation means because it's very gray uh, in some of the wording as fifty thousand foot level in terms of we're consolidating. Uh, public health units, or we're we're making changes to ambulatory services, and that means um, you know that uh, we'll be dealing with municipalities over the, ne- the the course of the year to to tell you how those things are, are going to unfold, and of course colleges and universities, Bill, and local school boards are dealing with the same. We're we're kind of flying by the seat of our pants, waiting for these legis- legislative changes, policy, and in some cases financial changes to be announced in a concrete way and with specifics and with details. Um, so that we can understand their, the implications it has on our budgets and, in some cases, on the services that we deliver. And so it's, it, it, it hasn't been, from a transparency perspective, the easiest government to work with, although, you know, that's been an issue in the past, and we just talked about the, the Harris government from the late 90s. And, and, again, I think it's just a sign of, unfortunately, things to come over the next couple of years. Well, has there been any dialogue at all, I, I mean, even at the staff level, to say, look at what's going down here and how's this going to impact us? Ministry staff, I, you know, I have to say that the, from the bureaucratic side of the province, I understand that they've messaged some of these things in terms of giving them, you know, a week's heads up. Uh, there are changes on the horizon related to services X, Y, and Z. Um, but when those changes are announced, there really hasn't been a lot of detail attached to them. 
Although, you know, Mr. Johnson um, gave us a pretty good uh, detailed uh, email the other day as it relates to some of these public health changes and child care services. And, um, and the conservation authorities, I think, uh, at the last minute received some, you know, very precise information. But with all the other services that we've talked about, it's still anyone's guess in terms of where they're going over the next year. Well, adding to the frustration here, uh, just going over the budget numbers, uh, mm-hmm. and I'm talking about the provincial budget numbers now, uh, they're announcing all of these cuts and saying, we're not going to partner with this, we're not going to give the money. And it's not just Hamilton, by the way. Everybody's going to be impacted by this. Yep. But at the same time, if you look at the numbers in the budget, they're actually spending more than the previous government did. So I mean, I'm asking, why are they even going through this? Because it's not really saving us any money. Yeah, and I, I, you know, Bill, that's a great question, and I don't. I think that's a great question for the premier or maybe one of his ministers. I, I, I don't know what the end game is in all of this. I mean, they, they really only have so many responsibilities at the provincial level. Uh, obviously, the two big ones are are, are health care and education, and um, you know, and we had the universities in front of us last week to talk about development charges, and and I could tell through their presentation there's tremendous angst there as it relates to their very. Uh, I think, afraid of what's coming from the provincial government. Um, you know, seeing these cuts to all areas, uh, there are, there seems to be more cuts than investments, and yet their the provincial budget situation just doesn't seem to be changing. So, I, again, I, hard to figure out, um, you know, unless you're in the war room there with uh, with the government in terms of, you know, what their strategy is. Obviously, they, they, they have something in plan for us over the next three or four years. I, I hope these decisions aren't being made on a day-to-day basis, but... Um, what that plan is is anyone's guess, and I, my fear going back to the downloading issue, Bill, is that my fear is that this is just the first stage for us this year. It's just it looks like it's between two and three million dollars, and that's about a quarter percent on the tax bill. Uh, if to equate it, it's one percent it, in Hamilton is just over eight million, and so a two million dollar cut for us is 0.25 on the tax bill. And I, I, I feel that, uh, you know, 2020 and 2021 probably have, uh, you know, larger challenges and larger financial numbers on the horizon for us to deal with as it relates to cost pressures. And so, I, uh, you know, I, I, I wish that, you know, maybe next time when you have uh, MPP Skelly back on the program, she can provide us more information. Um, we really haven't had a strong connection as it relates to, to dialogue with, with her office from a council perspective. I know, I know you had her on talking about her relationship with the mayor. And I think just on a broader in a broader way that individual ministries and the premier need to be a little bit more upfront and frank about where they're going with these uh, with their f- fiscal challenges and the plans that they have to try to solve them. And if there are changes on the horizon, the sooner municipalities and other stakeholders know about them, the better. I got about a minute left here. How do you guys handle this? How are you going to tackle this problem now? I mean, and maybe start to paint the picture as to how this is actually going to impact the, the citizens here. Uh. Well, I mean, the last time around, we were essentially dealing with these things at the 11th hour, right? In the late 90s, it, it meant service cuts. It meant that when the air monitoring station closed, it, it was closed for good. It meant that, you know, we were just forced to take on the costs of social housing in Ontario Works. And so I, I think, Bill, you know, it's, it's an open question in terms of when these services are downloaded, how, how is it that the municipality can take on these costs and, and, and are we prepared to pick up the cost for some of the services that have been cut. In this instance, with the $2 million, um, you know, I, I would hazard to guess that we're probably going to pick up those costs. Um, there was a small hit to the Conservation Authority. Conservation Authority is going to absorb those costs. They'll have to make some internal changes here at the city. I, I know Mr. Johnson, um, he knows his business inside out, as does Mr. Zagarek in the Finance Office. And so we're, we'll try to find ways to continue to deliver those services. 
I, I cannot promise that for social housing or Ontario Works or any other things uh, that have larger zeros and, and numbers attached to them. Um, we're, we're, um, we'd be in a difficult spot to try to take on all of those in terms of absorbing them in our own budget. So I, I see a combination of those two things on the horizon. Um, increased costs for municipalities and service cuts. Chad Collins, Councillor for Ward 5, uh, going through this all over again. We'll just and, and again, we don't even know the whole picture here, so we'll have to yeah. see uh, with some of the upcoming announcements on this. Thanks so much for the time today, Chad. Appreciate it. Thanks, Bill. Take care. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The much-anticipated announcement was made earlier this morning, and uh, Joe Biden is officially in. I believe history will look back on four years of this president and all he embraces as an aberrant moment in time. But if we give Donald Trump eight years in the White House, he will forever and fundamentally alter the character of this nation. That was uh, part of a video, which was the kickoff for the Biden presidential campaign, probably to the surprise of nobody. I mean, it's been rumored, uh, well, ever since the last election, I suppose. But he has made it official. Uh, If he wins, uh, he would be the oldest uh, person ever to assume the presidency in the United States. Uh, But he, like every other politician, has some baggage. And so what are the chances? What's this going to do to the presidential race? Joining us is Henry Jasek, professor of political science at McGrath University here in Hamilton. Uh, Henry, thanks for the time. How are you doing today? Oh, just great, Bill. Good. You're not surprised by this, I assume. Oh, no. We've been waiting and waiting. Yeah, we knew it's coming. It's just a question of when it was going to come and how he was going to essentially roll it out and the message he was going to put out. And clearly a lot of thought has gone into his message today. What's uh, what? What is this guy all about? I mean, you know, if you had to characterize uh, Joe Biden, uh, and 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 maybe you know, I guess what he has to have find at this point, Henry, is, is some separation between he and the other Democratic uh, hopefuls. I guess at this stage. Well, he he looks like a guy. I mean, he's portraying himself as a guy who can stand up and defeat Trump. That he's Trump's worst worst nightmare, and that he he essentially can get rid of Trump, and he's going full bore against Trump, which a lot of the other candidates, they're talking about their issues. A lot of them are saying we have to be positive about our issues and not spend all our time worrying about Trump. Biden's uh, uh, approach is completely different. That The number one thing that the Democrats have to do is get rid of Trump, and that's that's number one on his agenda. And and how people respond to it in the Democratic primary is, is going to determine whether he's the candidate or not. What, what kind of a strategy is that? I mean, when if if you take it uh, as uh, a given that the, you know the Democrats did well in the midterms, we know that. But they, the it's, the consensus, I think, Henry, is that look at they did it because they didn't even talk about Trump. They talked about health care, and that seemed to be the driving force. Uh, Biden is is he going to be off message here, or is that going to resonate with American people? Well, he will have to, you know, in the campaign, if he's the nominee, we'll have to talk about things like health care and things like that. And I'm sure he'll come up with an acceptable message. I mean, he's smart enough to know he'll have to come up with an accept, acceptable message on those issues. But the difference between, of course, with the, the uh, uh, you know, the elections that we just had, the congressional elections, of course, there was nobody going up against Trump. Mm-hmm. So it made a lot of sense for the uh, Democratic candidates to play up local concerns, and that's where they were very successful because the people, a lot of people in the U.S. are worried about, were worried about their health care, and that was a very good issue, and, and other local issues, and that did, you know, and, and, and that brought out the Democrats. And we have to remember in the United States, 
on, on average, there are more Democrats than there are Republicans. And the Democrats win when they basically can bring out the Democrats <laughs> because there are more of them than Republicans. And they, they were able to do that uh, in, the, in, uh, in the last election. But now the, the presidential election is completely different because now you've got really two choices. And so all you have to do to win the presidency, once you've got a major party nomination, is convince a significant part of the population that you're better than the other person, the other person has basic flaws, so they shouldn't be president, then, then you win. So it's, actually, it's easy to win one, if you can make that strategy work. It's a very simple, easy strategy, as long as you can make it work. Uh, this will be the third shot, I guess, at it for Biden, won't it? Right. Uh, he, he wasn't even a factor the other two times he ran. Why is it going to be different for him this year, do you think? Well, simply because he has the image, he's putting forth the image, number one, he can defeat Trump. And also, when he's going to run his campaign, there's going to be like, uh, I think you're going to see virtually no references to his political career before he was vice president. You're going to hear so much about all the things that he did with uh, Barack Obama as Barack Obama's uh, vice president. And so you're going to hear him talk a lot about, uh, you know, the Obama-Biden uh, uh, presidency uh, of, of, of eight years and how, the, how good that was. And uh, so that's what he's going to have people focusing on, uh, you know, hit the latter part of his life. And, uh, and, and if, it, if, he, if he can do that, so far he's done pretty good on that. He, I, I, so that's, that's his strategy. So he's, he's, got a win, he's got a strategy that looks pretty good on, uh, you know, by when we look at the evidence and what, how people respond. Um, he, it looks pretty good. Is he going to be able to sustain it? To next January, so we'll, we'll have to see that. But th- that's that's the only question. But I, you know, basically, he has a pretty good plan. But he does have baggage. I, I mean, I guess anybody who's been in political life right. as long as he has is going to have some baggage. Uh, but he is he just trying to wipe that clear and pretend, hey, that forget about that. That didn't, you know, it's, it's not that he's saying it didn't happen. He just seems to be indicating it's not relevant anymore. Well, the thing is, he's not going to talk about any of that stuff. If it, 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 if, if it hurt, he could be hurt only if new, new stories come out. I mean, all the, the, the stories that have come out with him in the past, there was, they, they caused a few bumps, but they have now disappeared. Now I think the only, the only thing he has to worry about is new stuff coming out. And if there's no new stuff, new, new accusations against him, then I, think, uh, I, I don't think he's going to have to worry about that. Yeah, there were the plagiarism accusations, of course, that pretty oh, yeah, much uh, sure, deep-sixed yeah. his campaign at one time. The other one, though, that seems to be hanging around, and I'm not, I'm not sure if it's resonating or not, Henry, is uh, the fact that he's, uh, the, the, well, we've heard accusations, but th- there seems to be a consensus that d- d- Biden's a little too touchy-feely with uh, some of the f- female staff members. Okay, then when you're going to watch him when he's doing his campaign, he's beginning, he's in a very active campaign schedule now, I'm going to watch him at those and how does does he does he touch any of the women my bet is he doesn't touch any of the women when he goes on on the stage or anywhere that he knows he can't do that it, it's a very natural thing like he came out of working class culture in, in scranton now i'm originally from the u.s i'm about the you know i know his age P- people were a lot more touchy-feely in those days uh, when you're in that ethnic group, especially the Eastern European ethnic groups who are in Scranton, the Poles, you know, I'm Polish background, Polish, you know, the Poles, the Eastern Europeans. I mean, you, you, you just kissed everybody. You, you know, when you were a guy, I mean, I used to kiss my friends' mothers. I mean, this was viewed as normal. And, and that's the culture he came out of. Now, that's a very old-fashioned um, culture, uh, you know, that, that has its roots in Eastern Europe. And, and Scranton is a very much of an Eastern Europe sort of American place. And so he's essentially, you know, that, 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 that's 
you know, the past. That's the, uh, you know, you get a seed of it. If you want to get a good feel of it, the movie The Deer Hunter many years ago mm -hmm. captured all of that. Uh, uh, that Pennsylvania culture, and and so now he, so he, he's not going to do, you know. So we we're probably moved on from that, and he knows that, you know, that that culture is not something that plays today. Um, I don't know; it still may play in small town Pennsylvania. Who knows? But it's uh, it's he's not going to do it on any of the stages. So we have to watch how he he behaves himself around women, and I bet he doesn't touch any of them. Well, and I understand because I've already seen the debate, uh, you know, on some of the U.S. networks and on some of the uh, the political shows on Sunday morning. Uh, and, and I guess the message the Democrats are sending, if in fact Biden's going to be their nominee, is uh, if Republicans want to start talking about sexual impropriety, right. uh, bring it on. <laughs> because obviously the guy in the White House is, is the king of the hill when it comes to that. But but that's the element. Now, as a, as a politician and as a longtime senator, of course, uh, he was known as one of those senators that would reach across the aisle, be a mm. consensus builder, try to you know build coalitions between Republicans and Democrats. In this age of polarized politics where there's nobody reaching across the aisle much anymore, is, is that even a, a valuable trait now? Or is that something he can actually put out there and say, I can do better than this? Well, that skill is very good, given the fact you've got 20, now 20 candidates for the Democratic primary. Now, only, only one of those 20 people is going to win. And actually, there's somebody else is going to announce, too. So, so we'll probably get up to 21. So as, though, as people realize they're not going to make it, for him to go to them and say some soothing words for them, you, know, you respected them for running, you did your job, maybe you're a, li you're a little too early, it's never, you know, you, then next time you'll probably do much better, and bring them aboard. person who has that ability to make people feel good when, they're, you know, when, when they have to compromise and accept reality, I think that's a very good skill for him to have. And uh, uh, I think, and, I, uh, I, and that essentially... If he can pull the Democratic Party together, the various parts of the Democratic Party together, using that skill, and right now he doesn't have to reach out to the Republicans. As I said, the Democrats are the majority, are, are more important than the, uh, than the Republicans in terms of numbers. And also, we also know that a, major, um, a plurality, maybe not a, a yet a majority, of people who are independents don't want Trump to be reelected. So if he, if, he, if he can keep that, and in fact, if he can get the independents now up to a majority for him, plus a majority of the Democrats, well, I mean, he's going to have a big blowout. The uh, the other factor here, of course, is as you mentioned, getting out the vote. Uh, he's a blue collar guy. You mentioned he's from Pennsylvania, uh, which is going to be a swing state as it was in the last oh, election. Absolutely. I mean, I think the biggest shock, I think, of election night uh, right. three and a half years ago, Henry, was the fact that places like Ohio and, and Pennsylvania and right. Michigan uh, went to Trump. Uh, uh, they were everybody. I think was anticipating that those were going to be Democratic states, and they weren't. Yeah. Can a blue collar guy like Biden recapture those those states? Well, I think that's what he's going to do, and I think he, you know, those are those. His characteristics and mannerisms and the way he talks, he, he sounds like he's authentic to those people. And I think, well, I, I, essentially, for the Democrats to win, if they win what I call the Great Lakes states, there are eight Great Lakes states, uh, you know, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, and Indiana, those are, those are key. Those five states voted for Trump. If he can pull uh, uh, most of those states over to him, and it's not going to be that hard, I think that that's his key to victory. The Democrats win when they win the Great Lakes states. That's that's been true, you know, for a long, long time. But they stayed home. I mean, there was a polarization. A lot of Democrats yeah. didn't want Hillary Clinton to be the nominee, and they just didn't vote in that last election. They didn't vote, or they voted for Trump. And one of the most surprising things was is that uh, uh, is that while well, you looked at women, you you would have thought, okay, 
Hillary Clinton was a woman. She ran the last time. We looked at, okay, 54% of the women voted for her. But if you said, what about white women alone? 52% of the white women voted for for Trump. And you say, well, how is that possible? But because essentially many of those women uh, had thought that Hillary Clinton was morally flawed in a way that they, they could not accept, whether that was right, correct or not. Now, in this particular case, a lot of those women now now see Trump spending more time on Trump, comparing him to Biden. Trump looks like he's the morally flawed guy. And you're, I think you're going to hear a lot about in the general campaign about the morals of Donald Trump. That he, he's going to be he's going to be portrayed. And there's so much you know, evidence on this as a guy who is just morally should not be president of the United States. I, I, the, I guess the big thing that they always talk about with Biden, though, Henry, is, is his age. He's, yeah. he's 76 years of age. Uh, would be 77, of course, and the oldest person ever to assume the presidency if he were to get the nomination and eventually win this thing. And that's, that's a long road, but, you know, but it, that's, that's the hypothetical. Uh, Bernie Sanders is not that young either. They, they seem to be the two frontrunners at this stage. Uh, Trump himself is, I think, 72. Uh, is, is age going to be a factor in this election? Well, not against somebody like Trump, who's actually going to be turning 73 very shortly. So there's only about three, three and a half years difference there. Uh, the, the, for the primary, it is very important this year, the dynamic between, between um, the Biden and Bernie Sanders. And Bernie Sanders is about a year older than, than, uh, than Biden. Uh, but I think uh, essentially one of the early things that I think Biden people are going are to try to do is knock Sanders out of the race. And so we'll have to see what happens to the, to the Sanders campaign when, now that Biden is in. Uh, Biden is leading him when he wasn't a candidate. Now he is a candidate, and so the and he's going to be canvassing very vigorously again through those Great Lakes states into Iowa, which is close to it, but not in some other states. And if he starts going up, then I, I expect the money that would flow into Sanders will dry up. And in a primary, when your money stops or dries up or goes down, uh, you're out of the race. And so Sanders is in a critical position right now. He has to be able to maintain his uh, his organization and the money coming in uh, now that Biden is in the race. And, you know, if four or five months from now it doesn't look like he's doing it, then I don't think, I think Bernie Bernie's going to be viewed as an also-ran also by January. One of the other criticisms they say of, of Biden, though, Henry, is that he, he has difficulty raising funds. He, he was a longtime senator, but it, he was a shoe in every election. So I guess he, he was never really hard-pressed for cash when it came to that sort of thing. Uh, boy, when you're going for the big job, though, you've got to raise a lot of money. Well, I think what's going to happen is that the people who raised money for for the Clintons and, and particularly for the Obamas, for Obama, are going to raise the money for Biden. He's, although, you know, not, they're not endorsing him, Biden, yet, but I think it's very, it, I'm absolutely convinced that, the, the, that Obama and the Clintons do want uh, Biden, they're, and they're, their people are going to be out there raising money for Biden. So Biden's going to be really riding on the shoulders of two former presidents. Uh, what about Obama? What kind of a role is he going to play in this? He, I think he is, he's, he is uh, going to say nice things about all the candidates running and probably say it's nice that Biden is in. I don't think he's going to endorse anybody until it looks as if, you know, until sometime next year when the primaries are going. And if he, if, if he comes to a point where he thinks, okay, the primary race needs to stop, they need to push Biden over the, oh, over the you know, over the, over the, through the uh, winning tape, then, then I can see Obama coming out. But I don't see Obama coming out and saying, uh, you know, that uh, Biden is my man until, until that point. 
But, but below the surface, though, the Obama people, I think, are going to be working for uh, for Biden. And uh, both raising money and also among the constituencies where Obama did very well. Is this really turning into an interesting uh, political dynamic down in the states? Uh, obviously, we've got all these people running for the Democratic nomination. Uh, but even on the other side, an incumbent president who's obviously going to be running for re-election, but he's going to be challenged for the nomination. At least one guy's already there. The, right. I get the former governor of, of Massachusetts, I guess, right. uh, who's been out of politics for some yeah, time, well, but he's going to yeah. run. But there, there's now rumors, Henry, I'm hearing that a couple of other people may actually challenge Trump for the Republican nomination as well. Yeah, some of them may throw their hat in. And it depends, you know, if things, if the numbers for Trump start start going down. And, and remember, there's a lot of things that are going on in terms of these investigations and hearings that we're going to have in the, in the House of Representatives. When the hearings in the House of Representatives go, goes forth and they start calling in witnesses, and those witnesses are going to say bad things about Trump, and it's going to be all over the TV, and you can, so you can watch it and hear people say those sort of things. There is a danger that Trump's going to fall, you know, his numbers are going to start to fall down. As his numbers start to fall down, this is going to encourage some Republicans to say, maybe we got to get in here, that Trump is really going to be a loser, not a winner. And uh, once, once people start thinking that the, you know, the sitting president cannot win re-election, people are going to come out of the woodwork to try to take it away from him. Well, and uh, anybody who thinks that's not possible, I mean, he's still got, I think it's about a 90% approval rating among hardcore Republicans. Uh, but those numbers can erode pretty quickly. I mean, you know, George Bush Sr. is in pretty easy territory one year before that election. Then the economy started to tank, and then lo right. and behold, he, uh, well, he ended up not winning the election. Bill Clinton beat him in that election. So uh, this if you, this is an interesting dynamic, and some interesting things happen. We're already turning, we're talking about a possible downturn in the economy. Right. Uh, we haven't even talked about some of the other things that are going on in the Southern District of New York there, and some right. of the charges against the Trump Foundation and the Trump exactly. family. Uh, you don't want bad press when you're running for re-election, do you? No, you don't want any of that stuff, so we don't know what else is going to surface. I mean, we're absolutely convinced there's a lot of stuff that he's hiding. Can can that come out? And, and of course, if you once again, if you get you know some of the people who were with Trump, like McGahn, his former attorney, his other, one of his former attorneys, if he comes out like the previous former attorney, uh, and he's, he's in front of the, uh, you know, the House committee, uh, they, he can't be attacked by the Republicans because this is a guy like, like the previous attorney was, who was clearly a felon, had lied to Congress before. The guy, McGahn, of course, the, who had 30 hours of time with the Mueller, uh, we, you know, if he repeats that testimony to, to the, in open, in open um, hearings, as he did to Mueller, then you know that's going that could be very devastating and i i would say the model here is 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 um, what happened to nixon and the here and uh, in the watergate nixon really his opinion of people uh, by on nixon went down once they started to hear the hearings when you started to hear people who were close you know were in the republican party who had who did bad things for nixon when they started saying it publicly and it was in television and radio and it was on you know they could see it and they could hear these people who worked for nixon saying these things that's when nixon nixon stock went just right down so that's that's the dangers the hearings are are really the most dangerous thing for um, for Trump right now, and we'll see how they play out this year. Exactly. Henry, thanks as always. Great talking with you again today. Okay, very good, Bill. Have a great day. You too. Henry Jacek, of course, a political science professor uh, specializing in U.S. politics, and it's uh, getting pretty hot down there. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. There's a public opinion study that was done post-election in the province of Alberta. Uh, this is, of course, just after uh, Premier-designate Jason Kenney was elected. 
And uh, apparently Albertans want this guy to get to work ASAP, and they want him to start playing hardball with the federal government and the B.C. government and the Quebec government and just about anybody else that tries to get in the way of the economic recovery. John Iverson writes about it in the National Post today. Frustrated Albertans want to see Jason Kenney get very aggressive very quickly. And uh, John Iverson joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this morning. John, how are you today? Hi, Bill. How are you? Good, good. Listen, uh, not surprising, really. I mean, it's been a very frustrating uh, last four years, I guess, for Albertans, from an economic standpoint anyway, and they certainly showed that frustration on Election Day. But uh, they're, uh, they're they're not giving Kenny any uh, any kind of a honeymoon period here, are they? No, I was um, I was a little bit surprised at the depth of the of the anger and the the hurt. I mean, they don't feel just um, angry; they feel aggrieved and upset about the way that they they perceive the rest of Canada treating them and their kind of hour of need. Um, so this was a eight focus groups post election, and I, I had suggested in the previous week that you know I'd seen Kenny operate in, in Ottawa, and. While he was an excellent campaigner and a, and a you know a fierce partisan, when he was in government, he was actually a, a an arbiter of competing interests. He he, he made uh, uh, people on all sides of the argument come together, and he, he was a, some something of a conciliator, which which kind of goes against his his public image. And I suggested that you know uh, governing he may prove to be something similar, and he might find common interest with Trudeau on uh, the TMX pipeline, for example, and and actually get things done without having to resort to some of the things that he'd promised during the campaign, like referendum on equalization. Um, I'm less convinced of that now, having read, read some of these uh, focus groups, because people, they don't want to wait till 2021 for a, a referendum on equalization. They want one now. I think we pretty much know what the outcome of it would be, too, if they had one now. But as you wrote about in the piece today, uh, the it, the anger here is palpable. I mean, they're pretty upset about the federal government. The, uh, I, I get the sense, John, that they almost feel as though, look, at we're, we're kind of down and out now, and everyone else is kicking us while we're down. Yeah, I think it's different from maybe previous uh, downturns. that They don't see this as being a cyclical thing where, you know, the price of oil will recover and they'll recover with it. There's a feeling that this is structural, and that it's in some ways terminal to their way of life. There's a there's a kind of existential feel to to some of the, the anger here. That that um, you know Calgary is like a ghost town. There's tumbleweed blowing through it. That you know you used to be able to struggle to find a parking spot. Now you can find a parking spot anywhere. Um, this is not just another routine fall in the oil price. There is something much deeper at play in the Albertan psyche here. And they feel that while they've helped other parts of the country through crises in other parts of the country, nobody's helping them. Nobody's, and, and it's crystallized into the issue of pipelines. And I was saying, you know, we're, we're just as for environmentalists, protesting pipelines was a proxy for climate action. So building them is viewed by Albertans as an antidote to all this economic anxiety. So the whole thing... You know, there they, they were a whole bunch of other areas that Notley, Rachel Notley, the former premier, had gone into buying rail cars and doing this, that, and the other. They're not interested in that. All they're interested in is building a pipeline to salt water so that they can find new markets for their product. Is it really that simple? That, that sounds like I such an easy simple. solution. I think it's that simple. And I think if if, if the TMX pipeline uh, is built, I don't think it's enough for Trudeau to say it's going to be built. I think... It has to be built. There have to be shovels in the ground. I think a lot of that anxiety goes away if that happens. I, I, and one, one of the pieces there that really jumped out at me, I think it was a, a school teacher you were writing about who said, why, yeah. why do they hate us? 
Well, there's a real disconnect, it seems to me. I mean, I've, I've got family in Alberta, and I talk to them, and there's a disconnect between Albertans and the rest of the country. Why does Jason, uh, Justin Trudeau hate us? Asks a millennial primary school teacher, a female, who in any other part of the country you would imagine was a liberal voter. But in Alberta, they, they, they're talking past one another. And, you know, a lot of that must be placed at the feet of the... The blame must be placed at the feet of the Prime Minister and the Liberal Party because they have just done a lousy job at connecting with people in Alberta and reassuring them. And it comes down to pipelines once again, and which is, I guess, part of the angst with the, with the B.C. governments and now certainly with the Quebec government, too, that basically where they said, look, we don't want another pipeline coming east. Uh, but that's, that's really, as Albertans uh, are, are thinking right now, John, that's the economic solution for that province. Right. And I think that, there are, you know, there are other options. I think that Kenny's talked about uh, helping to fund indigenous projects, and there is an indigenous project which goes from Alberta to Prince Rupert, B.C., uh, which is, it seems to me, a viable option, except for the fact that the federal liberals have brought in a tanker ban, an oil tanker ban, which would mean that no oil tankers could come into Prince Rupert. Uh, that's sitting in the Senate at the moment, and it may be that that bill dies in the Senate because maybe even the liberals see that... Um, Things have changed since they since they proposed the oil tanker ban. You know, at the, at the time that TMX was, they were giving it their blessing and it was looking good. Since then, a BC uh, a, a NDP government was elected in BC, and a court has sent TMX back to almost square one. So, so maybe they would be almost accepting if their own legislation does not pass on tanker bans. And th- and this indigenous project, which seems to be to have support right across. Uh, from Edmonton to to Prince Rupert, maybe maybe that's an option. What what are they looking for from Kenny here, though, John? I mean, once he assumes the reins of power here, uh, one of the criticisms I remember that you wrote about in the piece here was, was of, of not Rachel Notley was look at she was trying to you know please everybody. She was trying to be an environmentalist at the same time she was trying to get pipelines built. And he said, I got the sense that a lot of the people think you can't do both. You, you're either yeah, with us or yeah. you're against us. Well, there's no doubt that the environmental agenda is way down on the agenda of most Albertans, it seems to me. I mean, the, the, the focus group suggested, well, we see our best way to help uh, reduce climate change as to export our oil to Asia, where it's lower carbon intensity than many other forms of carbon. I think most environmentalists most scientists probably would disagree with that. I mean, it, the oil coming out of the oil sands is not lower in carbon than most other types of crude. So that that does not seem to me to be uh, a good way to fight climate change, but it does not seem to me that climate change is high on the agenda for, for most Albertans. What they want Kenny to do is essentially mimic what Quebec has done for, for probably for generations, and that's use grievance politics and essentially oppose everything that's that seems to be impinging on its jurisdiction and play hardball with the federal government at every turn. That seems to be what they want Alberta uh, Kenny to do, and I think he will probably end up doing that. He can play that game, Kenny. I think he's going to play that game, on, on obviously, on the carbon tax. He's going to um, repeal the Bill 1 will be repealing Notley's carbon tax, mm-hmm. and he will fight the federal backstop in court. Uh, he is going to be vocal on equalization and whether they hold a referendum on it or not. He is going to want to rebalance the federation so that Alberta's voice in federation is louder than it has been in, in uh, 
in recent years. And, it's, and, and in some ways, it's not just Alberta he's speaking for. He's also speaking for people in Saskatchewan sure. and for many people in the interior of B.C. who feel that the West's voice is much diminished when it comes to Canadian politics and is drowned out by Ontario and Quebec. Is, is this going to be a return to the Peter Lougheed style of politics? Where yeah, I, I think that that's a good model. I think that's what, where he'll be. Uh, you know, I, Kenny's canny enough to be constructive when need be. And, you know, if the federal government on, in the middle of June decides that it, it believes the conditions that the court opposed, the federal court of appeal when it sent TMX back to square one, if the federal government then comes out in favor of TMX, having... You know, going back on on indigenous consultation and marine safety, then Kenny obviously is, is his interests are aligned. It could be a win-win situation, but I think in every other situation he is going to be a thorn in Trudeau's side. But can he do that? As you mentioned, he's got this conciliatory aspect to his his political genre. I mean, he he does make deals, and he, at some point he's going to have to sit down with Trudeau and and maybe even with British Columbia at this point. Uh, and try to facilitate some sort of an arrangement anyway. Uh, so can he can he play tough guy for the people outwardly, uh, but behind closed doors uh, do that conciliatory approach? Well, I think on the pipeline he can. I mean, at, at the end of the day, as the report says, if if he gets shovels in the ground on the pipeline, then he can go to the Cal- Calgary Stampede in, in the middle of uh, the summer as a conquering hero. Um, on that issue, their, their interests are aligned. Not on many others, it doesn't seem. And again, I guess the wild card here is how the Trudeau government is going to respond to this and just what they're going to do. Uh, because, I mean, they're looking at down at October 2 for the federal election. And yeah. and obviously, uh, I guess he's he's got two masters here. I mean, British Columbia says that we don't want any pipelines. And he's lost an awful lot of support in British Columbia for a variety of reasons, Wilson Raybould among them. Now he's got to try to do something to try to assuage the concerns in Alberta right now. Uh, so he's damned if he does, damned if he doesn't. Which which way is he going to fall? Well, I, I think that's the $64,000 question is, is exactly that, and I don't know the answer to it. it at the moment, um, he's in danger of going the way of Rachel Notley, trying to straddle this twin argument of being for the economy and for the environment. And there have been suggestions from senior liberals even this week saying he should go to Vancouver and announce that he's not going to move forward on the expansion of TMX. And that would be popular in British Columbia, where he needs to win seats. It would probably be popular in Quebec, where he needs to win seats. And it may well appease a lot of left-leaning uh, progressives in Ontario, where, again, he needs to win seats. I'm not so sure that Trudeau will do that. I think that that his character is such that to do so would be to suggest that TMX is not in the national interest. And he's argued that it is in the national interest so vociferously that, that he bought a pipeline for $4.5 billion. Uh, to change tack would su- to be to suggest he was wrong, and he never admits he's wrong. So I think that that's uh, maybe wishful thinking on the part of some progressives, but, it, but I remain to be proven wrong. I mean, it could be that the electoral math is such that Justin Trudeau has to come down on the side of the environment and at the expense of the economy. But is is the opposition to the pipeline in British Columbia as strong as, as some would suggest? Because I, I've seen polls where it's really about a 50-50 split. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that they have to to gauge that uh, electoral calculus. I mean, because not just in British Columbia, I think in, in parts of Ontario, for example, probably even parts of Quebec, where you've got 
people who are undecided, low-information voters who look at the pipeline and, in, in general, think it would be a good thing for Canada. And do you lose their vote or their support if you essentially go back on your own commitment to to uh, drive this thing through? I think there would be a grave danger of that. So I'm sure they are going to be polling on what to do on pipelines, which seems to be the the, the kind of crucible of the next election. But pipelines and, and, and carbon taxes is, regardless of all the noise we've heard on, on um, SNC-Lavalin, that is going to be the, the crucial point of policy difference that I think people are going to look at. At the end of the day, they, they vote emotionally on the response to leaders, but it will be in response to how the leaders react to to this issue, I think. Well, I mean, as you mentioned, he bought the pipeline, so he's got to come through, and I don't see that he has any choice. And he put his, I was going to say he put his money, he put our money where his mouth is uh, by buying this thing. He's got to follow through on that, or he's going to just have it, not just egg all over his face, but uh, oil all over his face, because he's committed to this already. Right, but, but you know, if, for example, the... Um they can't get Indigenous support. He can turn around and say, look, the courts of we can't get that support and the courts have blocked us, so we're going to put the expansion on ice. I mean, at the end of the day, they have an asset that is profitable right now. I mean, the TMX pipeline is in operation. Um, what we're talking about now is expanding it to double the capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he can put his hand up and say, well, we've got the, a pipeline that will eventually pay for itself. A lot longer timeline than they had anticipated, but... Um, I think anything's possible right now, Bill. It's it, we're we're in a general election. It's it's like going through the the looking glass. Um, the the sense, the common sense that we're talking about right now just disappears if the electoral calculus suggests otherwise. Seems that way. Listen, I got a bit of a minute left. I just got to ask you. I know you spent some time back in the UK a, a little while back. Uh, the First Minister uh, St- Sturgeon is uh, back on the record now, saying she wants another independence referendum by the end of 2021. Uh, this, I, I assume, is, is a, a result of the Brexit mess that's going on, is it? Yeah, well, they were, ele- I mean, it's a nationalist government. They were elected yeah. to have a referendum, so they were going to have it at some point. Um, the suggestion was, actually, I spoke to her when she was in Ottawa, not more than six weeks ago, oh. um, that uh, they, need, they do need to get some certainty on Brexit before they hold that referendum, but, but that's the mandate they were elected on, so it's not a great surprise that she now says, that they're going to do it. And obviously Brexit plays into it big style. I mean, you know, people voted in the last Scottish referendum in 2014 to remain in the UK by a a slim margin on the basis that they would remain in Europe. And a lot of the campaign, the no campaign was, you know, if you leave and an independent Scotland may not be part of the European Union. Well, guess what? People elected to stay and they're not going to be in the European Union in any case. So there's a lot of anger there. And uh, the big problem for her is that the the economic situation, the Scottish government spends more, or Scotland writ large spends more than it brings in in taxes. So you're either going to raise taxes or you're going to cut spending. And she has no answer to that beyond the cute answer that, well, that's not an argument for the status quo. That's an argument against the status quo. Uh, I don't think many canny Scots are, are buying that I think the the economic situation needs to get better, and that, and it does get better with a rising oil price um, before they're prepared to take that leap. But it is certainly not as much a, a leap into the dark as it was in 2014. Seeming, seemingly not. John, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks, Bill. Bye-bye. Take care. John Iverson for the National Post. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.
The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.